Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You could subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Whit. I'm a professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the War Room podcast editor. Thanks for joining us today. On today's episode, we're adding to our series on great strategists. And this is maybe the episode that you've all been waiting for, which is about Thucydides. Um, We talk a lot about Thucydides. He's been referenced in many of our other podcasts, but I haven't had the chance to get um, a group of of folks around to talk about it. So that's what we're going to do today. I am joined in the studio by three uh, colleagues and professors and scholars who think about and who teach Thucydides. Um, But right before we get started, I'm going to make the the note that none of us are classicists. Uh, We have a political scientist and several historians, again, people who teach and read and think about Thucydides, um, but who don't do so in the original Greek. Um, So first I have uh, Dr. Tammy Davis-Biddle, who is professor of national security at the U.S. Army War College, and she is also the course director for the first part of our course in War Policy and National Security, where we cover Thucydides. Hello, I'm glad to be here, Jacqueline. And then we have uh, Dr. Michael Nyberg, who is the Chair of War Studies at the U.S. Army War College. Uh, Mike's a renowned expert in the First World War and many things related to military history. And he's also the lesson author for our Thucydides lessons. So we've got course director, lesson author. And then my third guest is Dr. Richard Lockument, who is the Dean at the School of Strategic Land Power. And he is, uh, shall we say, a, are you a fan, a longtime reader and follower? Yes, that's of a good Thucydides. characterization. <laughs> um, and so he sort of, he sort of oversees, right? The curriculum here at the War College uh, puts, puts a spin on, on it. And, has read and written about Thucydides and taught Thucydides for a long time. Thanks for having me, Jackie. Okay, so we'll start off with our first question, and Richard, I'm going to turn it over to you, which is, what do we need to know at a very sort of basic level about Thucydides and the text, uh, the history of the Peloponnesian War, in order to approach it well? I think, uh, first off... Obviously, it stands the test of time. I mean, after 2,400 years, it's not a surprise why this text is still talked about as much as it is. It's, it's come up so many times through history, uh, translated into English by people like Thomas Hobbes, you know, hundreds of years ago. But really, it's because it captures so many enduring themes of, of humanity when it comes to the use of violence, frankly, politics and really violence, particularly in war. Uh, and it when you look at his background, I mean, fascinating character who... Uh, fortunately failed as a general officer in the midst of the war and was therefore exiled and then had time on his hands to write about it. So he is actually, uh, you know, the the model of a soldier, soldier scholar, somebody who was very important to Athens, uh, nonetheless, because of bad timing, really. I mean, that he was, he he failed in one of his his tasks that he ends up writing about the war. And he does so with a different approach than a lot of the other authors at the time, who tended to include a lot of references to the gods and uh, and other factors that had to do with 
what was going on. It was relatively dispassionate, dispassionate, you know, laying out what he saw happening. And so uh, in a lot of ways, he lays out most of the events for readers to interpret. He doesn't spend a lot of time editorializing. And I think that's one of the reason it stands the test of time so well. So just an incredibly powerful work about a very important war at the time that really stands up because of the themes are still very much with us uh, in many regards. So what are, if we think about the, the time and the, the Peloponnesian War, what is it, what's happening in the, in the war? What's happening in the Greek world at the time that helps us contextualize this? It's actually one of the things we, we start with, that how do you characterize the Greek world? Is it a bipolar world with the two great states, Athens and Sparta? Is this a multipolar world? There are uh, non-Greek states, Persia on one side, that are in Macedonia on the other, that are uh, pushing on this system. So it's a difficult system to describe. It's been at war for a very long time. Uh, Athens and Sparta had fought together against Persia. Uh, and in some ways, the Peloponnesian War that breaks out is the kind of aftermath of that. It's the it's the unsettled post-war period of that. So uh, Thucydides doesn't go into it a whole lot. Uh, he does talk a little bit about the way that the world got to be the way it is. Uh, but he certainly understands that this war is going to be absolutely tr- transformational. He understands that even as the war is beginning. Uh, he feels a deep, deep passion to describe this world so that none of this history gets forgotten. Uh, and it's really remarkable. He's one of the very few primary sources we have. If he hadn't done this, uh, we probably wouldn't know very much about this period at all. So what we know is that it's a world that's that's changing. It's a world that's in transition. It's a world that, um, to me, feels quite modern and quite familiar with, with the number of states and number of players that are mm. in, in the system, mm. uh, democracies and autocracies. Uh, it does have a, an, an oddly familiar feel to a modern reader. Yeah, it really does. Um, the other thing I think is that's so remarkable about Thucydides is that he is so self-conscious about wanting to create something that really will stand the test of time. He says he wants to create a possession for all time. And so he's really looking for the big themes, the big overarching issues of the day, so that when people read this, and he's hoping and expecting that they'll read it hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years later, that they are going to see the nature of mankind under pressure, the causes of wars, uh, the, the pressures of long wars, um, justice in war, and issues around justice in war. He's really trying very hard to get the facts right, and to go from the particular to the general, to move from being able to say something about what happened specifically here to saying something larger about the nature of mankind, about the nature of war, the causes of war, uh, the reasons why wars take the course that they do, why it's difficult to come to peace terms in the midst of a war, uh, what happens, how people get basically um, barbarized in war. So it's really uh, an amazing book of tremendous mm-hmm. scope. I think that's, I mean, so far that's been a theme, right? I think, and we have four of us who really love this text, I think. And you can you can tell that comes through. Every time I approach it, I find something new. It feels more modern or more relevant, mm-hmm. um, even though it's it's quite old. At the same time, we shouldn't, dance around the fact that this is a it's a hard text it is. um so before before we start talking about how we teach it and what's in it um let's 
let's talk a little bit about what makes the text hard or difficult. Why is this um, sometimes a challenge? It's a lot of unfamiliar places. It's a lot of unfamiliar and unpronounceable names. Yeah. Uh, it's an environment that is uh, a little strange to, to the modern eye um, because the cultural assumptions are different. The belief systems are different. So when I teach it at any rate, we have a we have a limited number of hours. I try to tell students not to worry about it. If they can't pronounce mm-hmm. Alcibiades, call him Big Al. I don't care. <laughs> um, I don't want us to get too bogged down in the details of what a phalanx look like. Uh, I want us to stay at the, the high strategic level as yeah. much as possible. But uh, it, it is. It's written in a obviously in a different language. It's written in a different form of a different language. Uh, so it can be really difficult. And that's why we use the landmark edition because mm-hmm. it, it does provide some assistance to students as they're yeah. going through it it has so much scaffolding with maps and yeah. summaries yes. and the appendices that the appendices really are really well. incredible i think one of the the best tip i've come up with of late is to listen to the audiobook while you read and that gets the pronunciation problem mm-hmm. sort of out of mm-hmm. out of the way and you can hear how someone might say the the greek uh the greek names you just have to turn it up because you can read faster than you can listen um but yeah, once you get past those like stumbling blocks, I guess, and you can get into the story, because it's a it's a story, right? Mm. It um, is. And so there's there's narrative flow, and there are protagonists and antagonists, uh, and it's a it's a sort of exciting exciting thing. Are there other um, are there other challenges that you would sort of recognize upfront? Other things people need to know before before digging in. I guess one of the things I tend to highlight is that point about how much of this is Thucydides' voice himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that there, cause there are a couple of places where he suggests, like he, he does, after laying out proximate causes of the war, talk about kind of an overarching cause of the war, you know, that basically the rise of Athenian power, the fear it causes mm-hmm. in Sparta. And, and that's so a there's, claim, right? It is. That's a claim. But, but the idea that there's a few where you'd look and say, that appears to be a judgment offered by the author. But for the most part, he doesn't do that. He tends to have lots of dialogues or or descriptions put in the mouths of others, or that he tries to convey that he's capturing it from others. In some cases, he actually says, and this is one of the complicating issues, that sometimes he puts in writing what should have been said or what he thinks yes. captures the, the sense of what should have been said on that occasion. So how much of that is him actually editorializing through these portrayals? Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, it, the idea of saying that we know that Thucydides says, uh, I think, is a, is a problematic statement. Uh, and okay. that, uh, and for example, my probably my uh, one of the claims that I tend to challenge most frequently is this idea that the Million Dialogue, a, a small segment of a large book, somehow represents the overarching, you know, philosophy of Thucydides. When what he's conveying is Athenian, a dialogue between Athenians and Millions, which is not necessarily the character of everything else in the book, and I think serves a different purpose. But what that leads to is there's a lot unsaid that is sort of, you know, why did he select what he did, and why did he place them where he did mm-hmm. in the way he compiled the book, which leads to sort of a reading between the lines, or mm-hmm. reading about what's missing in a 30-some-odd-year or 27-some-odd-year war. What does yeah, he leave out, not, and what does he there. conclude? Which so takes a little bit of looking for what's not there, uh, thinking about yeah, what's sure. not there. It's so interesting, though, the placement. Richard, you mentioned the Malian Dialogue, where you're, where he's really asking, do claims of justice have mm. an appropriate place in discussions about war? And the dialogue takes place, and, and we, we listen to it, but then what comes right after it mm. is the Sicilian expedition. Mm. 
And in some ways, you get a sense that perhaps he's suggesting, and you can't know for sure, but perhaps he's suggesting that this is what happens to a people who reject claims mm. of justice in war. Um, so placement and the way that he structures it can be quite interesting and can really be a wonderful focal point for discussion in the classroom. Mm. I, I concur, and I am one of those who thinks that that placement is, I tend to think it's not a mistake, but again, yeah. we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure, but... The, the Million Dialogue is sort of the pride before the fall, if you will, exactly. when you go into, into the Sicilian expedition, you know, the Greek like tragedy. This is straight out of narrative structure, right? That That's there's, right. Yes, There's yes. a tragic, uh, tragic flaw yes. in the... Uh, for the antag or for the protagonist, I guess. So this gets to a question um, because it's such a big book, because it covers such a long span. Um, there are these moments in it that we know very well. The Melian dialogue, one of those. The Sicilian expedition, maybe another one. And this is maybe exacerbated in many, not all PME environments, where we only read selections, where we don't read the whole thing. Um, so let's talk really a little bit about what the book says. What's what's in it? Um, what is this the the sort of narrative arc of the story that Thucydides is telling? I think it's the story of the destruction of the ancient Greek world. It's it's the it's the this is to me as a first world war historian what always resonates when I read this a, a war that begins when two great powers have issues that they're able to manage. And then their minor allies go to war, their, their kind of subsidiary allies go to war, and they find themselves going from a war to defend the interests of an ally, really, to an existential conflict that they cannot find a way out of. And the result is that they're destroyed, and an outside power, in this case the Persians, in the 1914-1945 case, you might say the Americans and Soviets, come in and take over. They, they mm -hmm. literally become the next dominant power. And that's another reason why this book just feels so powerful to me. Uh, it is the way in which a series of decisions, some of them we can recognize as awful, some of them we can recognize as perfectly reasonable, mm -hmm. nevertheless add up to this environment in which they destroy the very thing they think they're trying to preserve. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, an excellent way to get at it, particularly when you think in terms of the war college, where if I put it at the core of what we're trying to do is develop the discretionary judgment of our students. And what Thucydides does is lays out a lot of these really big decisions, particularly from the Athenian standpoint, but also from the Spartans and others, mm -hmm. and sort of look at those and, and judge kind of why they come to the decisions they did and, and what were some of the consequences. And a lot of it gets to that other part of war that Mike, Michael you know, highlighted that you know, the unpredictability, the incredible violence, the, the sort of spiral of violence yeah. Yeah. that leads to incredibly bad outcomes, even for the winners. Mm -hmm. And the inability to stop it once it gets started. Right. And he lived through it. He was seeing it. And it's his magnificent Athens that's really being destroyed mm -hmm. in front of his eyes. And so right. it's very poignant for him. He, he wants people to know about this. Mm -hmm. And he wants them to understand how this happened. Maybe so that in the future, people could head things like this off. Mm -hmm. and this Thucydides enters the curriculum here at the Army War College very early on in the year. Um, yes. And it's sort of a, in some ways I think it's, it's a really sobering introduction to the to the subject matter that we that we study here and there are so many um like we've already heard so many different themes and ideas and threads that can be pulled about government about leadership about strategic decisions about alliances about the international environment um it's it's an extraordinarily rich text 
for for students at the at the war college uh, and in other other places as well um it's also a text that gets i'm going to use the word deployed very purposefully um it gets deployed in national security conversations all the time um and i wonder how many people have actually read it mm. i wonder how many people have read it well or read it with a with a good teacher mm-hmm. um and so let's can we talk a little bit about how Thucydides and how this text in particular is sort of used in the contemporary national security environment? There's actually a Twitter account called Thucydides <laughs> Bot. Um, whenever someone misuses Thucydides, we'll give a shout out to Neville Morley, <laughs> yeah, who, who, who runs it. He, he calls them out and says either you're you're, you're quoting something Thucydides yeah. never said or you're using it in a way he yeah. never intended. So Morley is actually a classicist, so he he yeah. he has the authority to. Do we, have, do we have a Clausewitz site like that? I'm sure there's one out there somewhere. Um, one. But, you know, your point's a great one. I mean, it, like most sacred texts, uh, it can be used to prove almost any point that you want to prove. Um, and you have to read it very carefully, and you have to read it in context. And ideally, you read it in a room with a dozen or more people who have also read it and want to think carefully about it and, and can raise a level of discussion quite high. There's also a very simple way to read it, which is like any great text— uh, the wrong way to read it, but you can do that too. <laughs> it is wonderful, though, to read it in what's essentially sort of a reading group in seminar, where everyone's bringing their perspectives, and you have a leader who studied it and taught it for many years, and then we get to really discuss it, take it apart analytically, and and, and really wrestle with it. And that's such a brilliant way to read the text. I, mm. It's a magnificent text to read on its own, but I love the fact that I know when I read it again, I'm also going to be teaching it and hearing the perspectives mm-hmm. of other people. And so reading it collectively. Yeah. And Richard, you've mm-hmm. written about some of the ways that Thucydides gets um, deployed or used mm. in the contemporary national security environment. What do you... And I... And Frankly, I think, and this is probably also true for Clausewitz. There's probably the, if you ask somebody, what do you know of Clausewitz? You know, you get the uh, wars, continuation of yeah. politics by other means. The if you ask about right? right the bumper sticker, you say the same thing about Thucydides, you'll get either a truncated version of the Million Dialogue or, the, you know, what's very fear, common honor, now. Or fear, honor, interest. Uh, or also the, uh, the idea of a Thucydidean trap, uh, which mm-hmm. every time I've been engaged with uh, groups from the People's Liberation Army, they bring that up. Or the People's mm-hmm. Republic of China. We were at their mm-hmm. embassy a little while ago. So this idea that in the current world there's something about the United States standing in for Sparta as the, the the status quo power worried about the rising power of China is this idea of Thucydides' trap. And Graham Allison uh, at Harvard has has put this into a book. But this is such a such a simplification of, of a very complicated story. And I, I've actually pushed back in an article that's in War Room one of the written articles in War Room, talking about Thucydides and traps, that there's really several traps that Thucydides has identified, which get to the escalation of war, mm-hmm. get to sort of the imperial overstretch of the of the Sicilian expedition, talk about, you know, how do you convince your polity? I call it a polity strategy mismatch between Pericles, a brilliant leader, who probably has a strategy that maybe is a little bit too clever for what the Athenians can actually do, yeah, given yeah. that they're more normal human beings. You could make a case that that's something along the lines of Lincoln has a hard time with the Union. And in fact, once Lincoln's gone, Reconstruction's a lot harder if he's Mm -hmm. trying to lead a strategy that maybe others had a harder time understanding the logic of. So the idea that there's a lot of these threads that represent other, and I call them traps in wars, because a lot of times there's an assumption that 
you know, if we do this, we'll get what we want. And frankly, wars tend to play out in very unpredictable ways that tend to be negative even for the victors. Mm -hmm. And I think Thucydides does a nice job of laying those sorts of things out and just saying it's the one of watching a for a power transition is a massive oversimplification tends to be the bumper sticker. But there's version. actually many more stories. And That's this right. idea, Mike, that you were talking about that people can make perfectly reasonable decisions and they can still go terribly, terribly wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's certainly figures in the book that, that are terrible people who make terrible decisions, but there's also plenty of people who make decisions that again, you can clearly defend and clearly understand why they're doing it. And yet still recognize these are bad decisions. And the way the war begins with Athens and Sparta having to make commitments to allies is something that resonates with American military officers. You could mm -hmm. find yourself in a conflict, yeah. not because it's in your interest, but because you've made a commitment to another country. Um, and those could be perfectly reasonable, mm. perfectly rational decisions that could still end completely disastrously. And that's another reason yeah. why I like starting with this book and why the the, the, the warning signals from this book right. that, that come through 2,400 years later. Well, and you can also see the, the flip side of that, which is if you don't go to war to defend your allies' mm -hmm. interest, that, even if that's a long-term, perfectly rational, good yeah. decision... Um, that's going to have tremendous short-term consequences. Inaction that has a cost too. Equally yeah. un untenable. Right? It's the you know it's the the thing that a very senior person said when he came to the war college shortly after I got here, where he said every strategic decision you make is a fifty-five forty-five venture. He said the best you're going to do through education is get it to about sixty forty. Mm -hmm. In other words, the, the best process, the best logic the best everything still has a 40% chance of going disastrously badly. Yeah. Yeah. And you see that come through in this book a lot. And Thucydides is also interested in the tension between interests and emotions mm -hmm. and the way that human beings, being human beings, um, trip over themselves sometimes. Um, they get into positions that they don't necessarily really want to be in or that are in their interests because they have... Emotions and they, uh, the Corinthians are very angry for a lot of reasons, and the Corinthians are troublemakers throughout the story. But they've got a lot of issues, and those issues drive them to do things that are very troublesome and get sort of everybody in deep water. It's another thing about this book that I really love. He draws these vivid, vivid pictures of individuals mm -hmm. yeah. that students grasp onto, and and these people come back throughout the throughout the book, and he he he's able to 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 build this grand story, this grand narrative that he's able to build with characters that you come to really care about, whether you like them, hate them. You know, it's, I find it's interesting. Some students gravitate mm -hmm. towards some individuals more than others. Mm -hmm. uh, but but these people that you, you actually do begin to empathize with, and it's a powerful way to keep that narrative going. If I just add to one, one other thing that he adds, I think, really well, is that these arguments, and particularly once violence gets introduced, you know, this idea of having a rational policy, thinking about what you're trying to accomplish, tends to be easily overwhelmed yes. by the human passions that get over yes. it. I mean, it's the fear part of fear, honor, and interest. Yes. The in passions that order. of the it's Trinity. Important. Exactly. I think that it's in that order. So the idea that once they're into this, what might have sounded like the reason they started out, I mean, a great example is what happens at Pylos when the Athenians right. win and then won't stop right. uh, because they, they, they're they sort of an emotional investment. or the people who start this, the allies at Corsaira, their, their civil war continues in the background until one side is literally annihilated. Everybody is pretty much killed on one side. So the violence just spirals down to this horrible outcome. 
So the idea of the you know the passions overwhelming rationality mm-hmm. is I think an important theme, including the Sicilian expedition, the greed that goes with this yes. before this well, incredible the, disaster. Just the idea that war aims and strategic aims change over mm-hmm. right. over yes. time. Yes. Um, one of the things that I hear all the time from students, right? It, just tell us what you want. Just tell us. Tell us the end state that you want. Give us end states and we'll figure out how to do it. And I think, wouldn't like, wouldn't it be lovely if the world <laughs> worked that way? Um, but in, in reality, war aims change all the time and they change for human reasons. Mm-hmm. They change for irrational reasons. They change for perfectly rational reasons. Um, and so the idea that you can just have a strategy and that's going to, that's going to set you up for success um, is another, it's another reason I really love mm this um this text uh so we've talked about many of the reasons that we that we really like this and some of the important ideas are there other specific moments or passages or characters that you would um sort of commend to our listeners as people to people or events or ideas to pay attention to I like mm. the characters who find themselves just in impossible <laughs> positions. One of the, th- the the Sicilian expedition ends up getting commanded by the guy who had argued most vociferously yep. against it. <laughs> so, you know, yes. and, and again, it's the way that Thucydides mm. is able to tell this story. And as I remind students, this is without the internet, without word processing, you know, without even being able to go down to the corner store to get the paper and ink that you need. And yet he's able to tell this story, not just this narrative, but around these people and very often for students, it, it connects. They'll, they'll, mm. they'll remember a time when they had to execute orders mm. that they didn't believe in and had argued vociferously against. And so and they do it. Yeah. And then they do it anyway. And you have to do it anyway. And you have to figure out, well, what, what as you said, what part of that has to change the strategic outcome or the way that I'm going to do it or the people I'm going to put around me, how is this going to work? Um, so again, it, it, it's a way in which, even though this thing is 2,400 years old, it both, connects to the modern and yet it's far enough away that students can judge it dispassionately and mm-hmm. we're we're not talking about the u.s versus japan in world war ii or vietnam mm-hmm. or something that would get them very emotional they may have a sparta athens preconception in their head but it doesn't distort the way that they read sure. the text in the initial uh, stages in the early part of the book um there are also some wonderful speeches and this is the sort of rumbling up towards war about what war really is like and and uh, what are the costs and what are the things you have to be worried about and what do you have to consider if you're going to open this Pandora's box? What will fly mm-hmm. out? So there are some just wonderfully, um, beautifully portrayed, very detailed um, issues that are raised that are so resonant for officers for and especially officers who have been to war and have seen this yeah i think two things come to mind and one speaking of this you know how do officers like ours at u.s army war college deal with this i'm i'm mindful of the first time i encountered this was at the naval war college uh when i taught there in the early 2000s and it had actually been in the curriculum since 1972 and that date is not an accident. Mm. Uh, there was a realization that they they that were they were having a hard time talking about Vietnam mm. dispassionately. Yeah. It was just too yeah. raw, emotional. This was the tail end of the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and when uh, Admiral Stansfield Turner at the Naval War College introduced Thucydides, I think I think the quote comes from him that they they could talk about the Sicilian expedition, mm-hmm. and they were talking about Vietnam without talking about and they Vietnam could talk directly. about imperial overreach. That's right, and, and, and the yeah, problems of strategic choices. So there's this idea of kind of the larger thing of you know using historical analogies and why the th- why the Peloponnesian War sort of works well being mindful that there's a lot of 
things to be careful of, but as a way to talk about, you know, like I said, something a little more dispassionately because it's so set so far back and we don't have an emotional stake in it that we can, we can look at how others dealt with it. And yet we're, what we're trying to get them to do is put in their, their heads, you know, how to use discretionary judgment now. But the other part that we haven't talked about was that I find we kind of hinted at though, is that there's a really interesting streak about justice and morality that I think is tends to be overlooked. The Mytilenean debate, which is when they originally say, go kill all the women and ch- or kill, kill all the men and enslave the women and children, and then think better of it and send another trireme out to send the countermanding order. And that trireme actually feels good about what they're doing. It talks about the, you know, they're, they're trying and they overtake the other trireme with the yeah. execution order that is plotting across the Aegean, not wanting yeah. to carry out. It's their, carry such force. an evocative scene that he writes then and so to have that and that's an earlier stage of the war but as the war goes on then you get to the million debate and now the the sense for mercy is different and this idea of where wars go and as they go on these sort of sinews of humanity and morality maybe sort of fall to the wayside and people are willing to do more vicious and in and for the the consequences for democracies in particular i think are are quite stunning um throughout the book what what is the effect of fighting long wars right. mm-hmm. on democratic yes. societies? Um, I love, right, I, I don't think we can do this podcast without talking about Pericles' funeral oration. Mm. There are some really beautiful, um, thoughtful, philosophical, reflective passages um, about the meaning of, of war, about the meaning of fighting, mm. about the meaning of obligation and citizenship, yeah. um, which I think always resonate um and there it, so it's uh, it, like i said we're at the, at the risk of becoming sort of gushing fans of a, <laughs> we of already a text, are I think, too I think we're there um, <laughs> but there there's so much uh there's so much goodness in the book it is a book that you can return to mm-hmm. over and over and over and find something um, and people have right in the yeah. cold war so they, they read do, it as yeah. athens and sparta were in a cold right. war two superpowers yeah. and richard talked about uh, both the vietnam analogy and the graham allison lead mm-hmm. up to world war one analogy it is something that can be i think you have to be careful with it when you do this and you want to make sure that you're treating it as analytically as you can but every generation mm-hmm. seems to find something new yeah. in it now it's the sicilian expedition when right. when now it is that kind of sense both of imperial overstretch and of trying to do too much when you're engaged with something else so there's mm-hmm. there's a there's a theme in it it seems for every generation yeah. which is both insightful and kind of sad yeah but it's remarkable to me that the Thucydides sort of knew that yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm amazed that he yeah. had the sense that he was writing something that really was going to hold up that would up, be enduring that would last and he, and he said right as you as you know he says that in the beginning yeah, of the book he does. like I'm not I'm not writing this for my generation. I'm writing this for all time and forever. Yeah. And I don't think he'd be surprised that we're talking about this on a podcast. No, to have that to have that level of confidence and being yeah. here. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> you know, put that put that on my it's on not my on wall the as I write. List, yeah. <laughs> no, it's not on the yeah, on the bargain bin at a books a million or whatever. Yeah. So we'll wrap up uh, because we've we've hit our time. Um, but thanks for joining us today mm-hmm. on the War Room podcast. Uh, if you have not read the History of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. We commend it to you. Uh, we commend it to you collectively uh, to read it with read it with friends, uh, read yes. it over over a cup of coffee or some beer, um, and talk about it and talk about what it means and talk about what resonates. Uh, you don't have to be a classicist. You don't have to be an expert, a trained military historian, in order to really read and dig in to the book. So Richard, Mike, and Tammy, thanks so much for joining me 
today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Jeff. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.